Hi, everybody. It's me, Baseball Boy, the kid from the Bronx, Big Ed and Nora's baby boy, Ed Randall, the world's foremost authority, guardian of the conventional wisdom, and a guardian of one of the great creations of American culture. So welcome back to Ed Randall's Talking Baseball as we satisfy your craving for all things baseball and covered with context and with perspective. Time to rhapsodize with our articles of faith. Baseball is your dream repository. It keeps you warm at night. It's who we are at the background music of America. It's the only game you can see on the radio. The perfect game. We'll do our part featuring perspectives and stories you won't hear anyplace else. Presenting baseball majesty. Powerful, accomplished, important, interesting people. Here, the game is never over. Here, we never take your commitment or loyalty for granted. Nothing here will be structured around negativity, faux anger, or contrived points of view. It will be civilized discourse. So I welcome you to a weekly celebration of an American institution that binds the generations together as Ed Randall's Talking Baseball and Performance right now takes the field. Right off the bat on Ed Randall's Talking Baseball, off the shelf. Time for a book report. 44 former New York Mets players share their memories of their time with a franchise with a history unlike any other in American pro sports in You Never Forget Your First, a collection of New York Mets firsts from Pressbox Publishing. They're all here, from the original Frank Thomas to the captain David Wright. We welcome to Ed Randall's Talking Baseball, the authors, Mark Rosamond and Howie Carpin. Great to have you guys with us. Mark, I'll start with you. Tell us about the idea for the theme of the book. Always a pleasure being with you, Ed. And, you know, I don't know if you even remember this, but I, 20 years ago, you were the impetus of getting me back into radio. I heard you doing an interview with Denny McLean, and I just said, this is what radio should be like. And from that point on, I went back into it. And I met Howie, and Howie and I have uh, written these books uh, together. We keep on coming up with different ideas. And over the course of the radio show, you know as well as I do, when you start talking to baseball players or hockey players or any player at all, and you talk about their first game, their recollection is incredible, down to what the temperature was and the dew point. And I just found that so fascinating, and I just wanted to get a hold of different franchises, talk to those players, talk about their first minor league coach, their first baseball game, the first time they saw themselves on a baseball card, and things like that. And um, Howie and I just fell in love with that idea, and we're now working on our fourth in that series. But Howie and I, you know, I am a lifelong Met fan, so this was a dream for me. Yeah, I'm sure, in a labor of love. Uh, Howie, the book spans only six decades, which is as long <laughs> as the Mets have been around. Hobie Landreth, age 92, God bless him, he's in the book. Talk about that. Yeah, that was one of the charming things about it, you know, writing it with Mark, because uh, going back to the early days, I you know, it's funny, I grew up a Yankee fan, but I was, I've always been fascinated by you know, the early history of the Mets, especially at the Polo Grounds, because I did a book called Mets 162-0 and and I had a number of the games from that era in that book. So, you know, Frank, getting Mark getting to talk to Frank Thomas, what Mark and I do is Mark is big on the contacts. He, he contacts a lot of people, does a lot of the interviews, and then I transcribe it and, we, you know, we get it, get it into book form. But, uh, you know, some of the interviews he came up with, like Frank Thomas, it was really fascinating to hear his recollections, you know, at his age. And God bless him. You know, he's, a, he's the eyewitness to that era, and he can bring us into that era with his recollections. And just to piggyback on that with, with Hobie, sure. 
his his memory was incredible. And, and for me, you know, I only know Casey Stengel as an old man at Old Palmer's Day, but he talked about that first spring spring training under Casey and talked about how Casey walked him from station to station to station and said, this is what you do here. And then he talked about a situation on the pitcher's mound, bases loaded, nobody out, this is what we're going to do. And he went through this whole scenario. Then fast forward, when Hobie Landreth is a catcher for a Gil Hodges-managed Washington Senators team, bases loaded, nobody out. Gil Hodges comes out to the mound to talk to Claude Osteen. And at that point, Hobie Landreth just turns to Gil. He goes, let's Casey him. And, and Gil had no recollection of what he was talking about, but he did exactly what Casey told him to do. And according to Hobie, they got out of the inning with no runs, but according to baseball reference, you know, it was a little bit of writer's embellishment. There were a couple of runs scored. Uh, and of course, on the subject of Hobie Landreth, we will never forget the quote from Casey Stengel. He was drafted first. He was the first player the Mets took in the expansion draft of October 1961 as they stocked the team for the 62 season. And somebody went up to Stengel and said, why did you draft a catcher first? And he said, well, if you don't, you'll have a lot of pass balls. And Landreth, of course, went down in history as the Mets' first draft choice. But but to the point of talking to guys like Hobie Landreth and Frank Thomas, how wonderful it was, Mark, that Steve Cohen, the new owner of the Mets, reestablished Old Timers Day, which I thought was an abomination, uh, elimination by the previous administration, the Wilpons, after the 1994 Old Timers Day, what, how wonderful it was to see Frank Thomas in person and Jay Hook and the guys that they all brought back that day. And as a lifelong Mets fan, Mark, I'm sure it was a, a day that really, really touched your heart. Oh, yeah. I was a kid in the candy shop, especially when they all came out on the field and we got access to, to go and speak to them. It, it was phenomenal. And just to see the different generations of Mets talking to each other. It was phenomenal. Uh, Howie, uh, you, ha you asked uh, U.S. players about their first managers. What stands out from that? Because uh, I'm going to run through some various subjects here. You guys can jump on them. Tell, tell me about first managers. Well, the one that, I, that stood out to me was uh, the infamous Butch Benton. His first manager was Joe Torrey, and he didn't exactly have kind words to say about him. Uh, you know, he he, uh, he disputed the fact that he was a player's manager. He had kind of a personal incident with him. In fact, uh, I'm looking up to, oh, here's a quote that we had in the book. Uh, Benton called him a total prima donna, wasn't a player's manager. Now have things changed and he is different now. Maybe he is, but I think that was his first managerial job. He thought He thought he was better than everybody else. And that was the only, you know, anybody that brought up Joe Torrey, you know Joe Torrey. I mean, we, all, we both know him. We all know him a long time. I mean, to, to hear someone be so critical of him kind of, you know, really <laughs> opened my eyes. I found it a little fascinating. But then he went into why there was a personal incident there where he, I think he wanted to be home with his, to see the birth of his child and, and it, you know, uh, Joe didn't allow him to, to leave or, uh, you know, uh, that was according to him. Obviously you need the other side of the story, but I found that to be the most fascinating when it comes to first managers. And Mark, what about for you interviewing guys about first managers? It was interesting because obviously we know the history of Met managers and, and you know, 
Uh, I remember Jerry Kuzman um, talking about West 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 Westrom, and um, he kind of alluded to the fact. I, I think West Westrom was from Sandstone, Minnesota. So Jerry said right there there was a little bit of a bond between them, and you know West kind of took a liking to him and kept on telling him if you want to make the big leagues you got to keep the ball down. And he kept on preaching that to, to Kuzman in particular, and uh, so that's all Kuzman really worked on. He worked hard on that. And he said he thinks that was what impressed West Western so much because, you know, getting a young kid to keep that ball down was extremely hard. And it, it, they had a very special relationship. That was one that really stood out to me as well. Uh, let's talk about training camps and uh, what you hear, what you heard from players about spring training camps, Mark. Uh, again, the one that really stood out to me was Hobie Landreth because he went into great detail how Casey would first take them into the dugout. And, and he said this was the entire, it was, you know, 62, so it was the entire team. It was the minor league, everyone. And he said 40 guys in a dugout. So Casey said, when you're here, you're looking at the third base coach. If you're not playing the game, you're trying to steal signs. Then he would go to first base and the, and, and the cutoff was. And, and, and Casey Stengel's, you know, spring training was so detailed and again you know my frame of reference is probably was a seven or eight year old at old timers day in Casey come out from I think it was like his 86th birthday you know so I always had this you know and, and just the old footage of him saying amazing 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 you know but just to hear how much of a great baseball mind Casey Stengel was and the same thing from Frank Thomas really really uh, resonated with me that was the the Biggest takeaway. The other ones, you know, you and I and, and how you've been around the, the current spring trainings, and, and you, you just get that feeling. I mean, a lot of the guys for the first time walking in, the young kids, seeing players that they looked up to, that was something that resonated as well. You know, the you know, kind of starry-eyed as young kids trying to make a team in the spring training. Uh, pretty much every one of the, the players from the 80s and 90s had that kind of recollection. Howie, uh, writing it up, it must have really uh... – resonated with you the joy that that was jumping off the pages from guys who made the club for the first time tell us some of those stories yeah well you're so right i mean you you know when mark feeds me the interviews he puts them on a you know on an app where you can actually i actually hear it and it's also you know written out for you so it's kind of interesting when you see something that actually brings a smile to my face, somebody, you know, making it the first time, uh, you know, there's such joy there and such elation because, you know, you're a ball player from way back. I played a lot of ball, you know, that obviously we, we probably had dreams as a kid of making it. And, you know, these guys are really doing it. And I, I give anybody credit that, that even got one at that in a major league game or even in a spring training game, you know, just to get to that level, takes so much hard work. So yeah, the, you know, there were a lot of smiles when I saw somebody like that. Like, you know, we had Ike Davis, and he talked about trying to, you know, make it in the spring, getting his confidence and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, for, for baseball guys like us, it's a real joy to be putting out these kind of books. I bet I, I bet so. Uh, my goodness, you must have gotten so much reaction when you talked to so many players. There's 44 players in the book. Uh, you never forget your first. Uh talking about their first hit mark yeah it, it's just so interesting when you talk and 
it's more interesting when you talk to the pitchers about getting that first hit because they really have you know, a much better recollection of it. Some of them don't even remember their first hit. Some of them remember it vividly. Um, I'm just trying to think, you know, and, and talking about, you know, getting called up. Uh, one of the guys we spoke to was uh, Butch Husky. And the day he got called up, his father's a police officer. The phone rang. And his father answered it, and Butch was out, and he took the message, and he came back in the house, and his father said, you know, Steve Phillips from the Mets called. You, you got to call him back. And Butch Husky said, no, come on, that, that's, you know, uh, you know, that's a joke. He goes, no, he, it's not. He called and says you need to call back. So he called him back. It just so happens that Bobby Bonilla got injured. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Butch also said, by the way, best baseball contract ever. Um, he got injured, so they told him to get on a plane and, and be in Houston. And, you know, so this is not about a first hit. Which Husky's first game was against the Houston Astros, and that's the day that Daryl Kyle decides to throw a no-hitter that night. So Butch uh, didn't get that hit in that first game. Uh, he wasn't even aware of the no-hitter. He just said he was trying to scrap for a, a hit. But um, So sometimes it's so much more about the non-hits that they remember. Obviously, Benny Ayala, you know, um, first home run and his first at-bat, that was very memorable for him. So that was probably the most memorable first hit for a player, Benny Aiello's home run. And just to pick up on that, Howie, guys who hit their first home run, what do you got? Uh, you know, one of my favorites, and I'm, <laughs> I've been writing so many books, it's hard to recall some of the stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of my favorite guys, obviously, and, you know, you know him well is David Wright, you know, and, and – uh, he, he was great, and, uh, you know, he talked about his first home run in Montreal at Olympic Stadium. Uh, you know, he remembered it so well, so vividly, and uh, that he, he said he said he hit into the left center field stands, and there was only one person there, and he said, I think we traded him a jersey for the ball, and, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, his personality comes to obviously a cool moment, he says, and, you know, you know how great a guy he is, and it was a pleasure to get to interact with him, so... You know, he's one of my favorites in the book, and just to look back on his first home run brought, brought a smile to my face because I saw it. You know, obviously we saw him when he came up, and we, we were there his whole career. So he's one of the special guys for me in that book uh, on a personal level. And what about for you, Mark? Who were the special guys for you on a personal level? Um, you know, so many of them. Is, you know, I've gone down to Met Fantasy Camp. I've played, and I've played for a lot of them. But there's just so many different guys that have, you know, different relationships. Ron Swoboda, I, I could speak to Ron Swoboda every day of the year and never be bored because he just has, you know, so many great stories and he's just a, a great guy. Doug Flynn is another one. Um, a lot of the fantasy guys are, are special to me, but then all the guys I grew up with, like Rod Gaspar and Jerry Kuzman um, from the 69 team, the 86 guys. Uh, so, you know what, being a Met fan – I can't, it's, you know, it's like, which of your kids are your favorite? You know, every, you know, when I got off the phone with each one of them, that was my favorite. And I certainly can understand that. Uh, you guys mentioned it earlier, baseball. Uh, first time these guys saw their faces on baseball cards. Uh, Mark, mm -hmm. I'll start with you and throw it to Howie. So the two stories I love the best is um, Turk Wendell. Turk Wendell's uh, parents owned a convenience store that they sold baseball cards. And, you know, as, even as a kid, that first day when the big Pops Wax, you know, case came out, he always loved getting those first. So, so knowing that he was going to be on the, the, a card that year, he bought the entire first box. 
and he's sitting there opening every <laughs> single pack. And there was not one Turk Wendell card in the pack. Some kid walks in, wow. buys a pack. The first card the kid buys is the Turk Wendell card. So that was like, the, and you know the way Turk speaks. And we was telling that, so it was great. And the first time Tommy Glavin saw himself on a baseball card, he was at his parents' house. Some kid down the block got a Tommy Glavin card, decided, you know, that's where Tommy Glavin, you know, grew up, made his home, rings the doorbell. Tommy answers it, and he showed, the kid shows him the card. Could you autograph it, please? And it was the first time Tommy saw himself on, on a baseball card. So um, those were the two that really stood out to me. That's a great story. Uh, the Mets, as you guys both know, traded uh, for Gil Hodges to get him to come to New York and uh, become the manager of the Mets in time for the 1968 season. The Mets gave the Washington Senators to get Hodges out of the contract there $100,000 and a young right-handed pitcher named Bill Dennehy. And uh, mm -hmm. I worked with Bill Dennehy on the air uh, uh, some time ago, a wonderful guy, uh, later pitched uh, for Billy Martin, and boy, does he have stories about pitching for Billy in Detroit. But uh, Bill <laughs> Dennehy proudly would say, you know, my first baseball card, my rookie card, that rookie card <laughs> won 312 games in the major leagues. <laughs> Tom Seaver yep. on the other side in the other <laughs> picture, he won 311, I won one. <laughs> How he talked to me about baseball cards. Oh, uh, I, I couldn't wait for the uh, new Topps uh, season to come out. I would get a box, absolutely. I looked for my favorites, you know, a lot of Yankee guys. And uh, you know what I used to love? I used to love those old World Series cards. Like they had one from the 1964 series where they had a picture on uh, that represented each game. And then on the back, excuse me, on the back, they, uh, you know, recapped the game. I think they had a little box score. I don't remember. But I remember there's a picture of Gibson pitching to Mickey Mantle, you know, in the road uniform. Must have been game seven. And Gibson has already released the ball. And you know, you know how, his, he, he, he was, how he would land and he, his arms would be, you know, spread out wide, ready to field. Mantle's ready to hit. So, that those are the cards that really struck my fancy. And then, you know, to get those cards that Topps used to put out with the little trophy on the bottom signifying like, a, you know, an all-star. And it Rookie was a lot of fun. I, I used to, yeah, and, you know, obviously the bubble gum, <laughs> it was so hard you had to loosen it up. But it, it, was, it was a terrific experience, you know, baseball cards. Uh, you talked uh, in your book to them about idols, uh, Mark, I'm interested in what you got from some of these guys about their idols. So many. And just, be, you know, you think growing up that, you know, we as kids, we each have your idol. But when you hear from a major league baseball player, the guys that they grew up about being, you know, their idols. But um, for me, probably one of the most interesting was Rick Ankeel. I think that his brother. Um, was his idol in some respects, but his brother was uh, talking about baseball cards was a huge baseball card collector. So Rick Ankill was always fascinated by the guys that were young. And so it was Gooden and Strawberry, King Griffey Jr., A-Rod. Those were all the guys, the 19, 20-year-olds that he saw on baseball cards were his idols. But he said, personally, I think he looked up to King Griffey Jr. because he was a huge Braves fan. And um, so everyone on the Braves, at that point, had known the dad. So because of Ken Griffey Jr., he just gravitated to him. So I think that was one of the unique ones. But the, every single guy, there was you know nobody that 
you know, there wasn't a journey. Interestingly enough, no one's idol was Al Weiss growing up. You know, the idols were the guys that you kind of would expect to be idols. Um, you talk also about postseason games. So when you talk to a Benny Agbayani, uh, there's the home run. You talk to Bobby Jones, there's the one hitter. So much to choose from, Howie. Yeah, including uh, Jesse Orozco, you know, who obviously was on the mound for the uh, the last time the Mets won the World Series. He, you know, his his uh, comments were, were pretty interesting. There's, there's a number. Obviously, the, the Mets have had you know had somewhat of a postseason history. So there are a number of guys who've been involved. You know, Howard Johnson. You know, obviously Jerry Kuzman is on the mound for the final game of the 1969 World Series. I found his comments fascinating, you know, because that's such an iconic moment in New York sports history, that final out that's uh, nestled into Cleon Jones' glove. So that, 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 those comments, you know, from him and his feelings about that moment, that, that, that struck me the most uh, as far as talking postseason. And and just to piggyback on that, most Mets fans, I mean, they do know this, but it, it's such great trivia. I mean, 1969 to 1986, if you think about it, the two pitchers that were on the mound when the Mets won those both World Series were traded for each other. And interestingly enough, in spring training of 68, Jerry Kuzma wore the number 47, as did Jesse Orozco. So that, to me, 1969, 1986, the two pitchers that were on the mound were each traded for each other, and at one time wore 47 as a Met. Mark, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, Kuzman had asked uh, to be traded to the Minnesota Twins so he could pitch closer to home, but nobody ever talks about the fact that in that deal, the Mets got this young left-handed pitcher that obviously they scouted in the California League in Visalia in that deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. A lot of people don't. You said it was a. He was like a throw. For the Mets, he wasn't a throwing, but he wasn't a, a big name, and people forgot it was. You know, and then all of a sudden, he's the guy that's on the mound when the Mets win the series. Uh, talk to us, Mark, about trades. Like uh, we just mentioned, Kuzman for Orozco, and there were others there. Um, other others in uh, that spoke to you about trades, either coming to New York or leaving. You know, it's always a shock. It's um, So for Rico Bronia, I, I believe he was really excited because at that point he thought that he was really going to be given a chance because he knew that the Mets at that point were rebuilding and that was a team that he felt really wanted him. And there's so many different reactions. So the guys that have been lifelong guys in an organization and then get traded, that hurts when they've been in for a long time. The, the guy who was probably the most bitter about being traded away was Amos Otis. Um, he, he really was shocked by it. He really never felt he got the opportunity he deserved with the Mets. So there's, there's a, that's what makes the book so great. There's each one of them, each one of these players are individuals, and they each have different reactions. And to just read one or two of the chapters at a time, which is what this book is meant to be, you kind of get that sense. And, and it's, it's a great retrospective of history and the guys that have been acquired by trades or were traded away all have interesting stories as well. And that's just like a little portion of each chapter. Yeah. If I may interject here, uh, my, my favorite one in that category is Doug Flynn because obviously he's involved in the, the most, 
uh, infamous trade. Well, not really the most infamous, but one of one of the most infamous trades in Met history when Seaver was traded to the Reds. And uh, Flynn's reaction. Oh, no, you had he, it right the first time. You had it right the first time. <laughs> the most infamous trade. There's nothing well, close. You could, Go ahead. Yeah, I know. That's Rusty true. Rusty Staub for <laughs> Mickey Lolich is up there, but nothing uh, like that. Get, Go ahead. for Ghosty, Nolan, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, Brian. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, yeah, there's, anyway, there's a 12-way uh, tie for first place. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he said that he, he got wind of the deal from Pete Rose, and he was still on the field with Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, to come over and be involved in that kind of trade, it wasn't his fault. I mean, you know, he was under a lot of pressure, you know, because of the, you know, obviously who was traded away and, and, and all the circumstances that led up to it. But he was gracious about it. He talked about it. And uh, I found him the most fascinating when it came to that category. Um, I, I want to tell both of you this. Uh, having the great good fortune to hang around the game for as long as I have and, and talking to players, uh, I, I, I used to do a, a column for the Atlanta Braves, the Cincinnati Reds, the Boston Red Sox, and the Mets for this newspaper, these newspapers that they used to have. It was all owned by the same company. And I would do a, a, a column called In the Beginning, In the Big inning and it would be 25 questions or so favorite subject in school least favorite subject all that stuff and and i'd say to them did you expect to be drafted by the team that drafted you 90 percent of these guys said they never expected to be drafted by the team that drafted them mark what was your experience talking about guys being drafted by the new york mets Similar. Um, lots of guys. Some of the guys did know because they had gotten phone calls before and say, you know, we're probably going to draft you. Others were contacted by, let's say, the St. Louis Cardinals and they said, listen, we're going to take you with this number pick. And all of a sudden that number pick got passed and they were picked and then they were picked by the Mets. And they never went back to, like, say, the Cardinals and say, like, what happened? Um, the older guys, it, it's the greatest because, you know, we know now. You know, it's televised. It's on the internet. You can watch it on your phone. You know, you know, the second a guy's drafted, you'll get an alert. Back in the day, it wasn't like that. If you were not a first-round pick, some of these guys found out by their gym teachers you know, that got a call to the school or found out two days later in the newspaper. Um, so that I found very interesting, just the way that they had found out back in the day, you know, in the you know, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, exactly. There was a, a huge time, uh, time lag between yep. the time in which a player was drafted and the time that he was notified. Um, our time is short, but how we talk about guys talking about their first pro game. Oh, that that, that was fun. A, a lot of guys, uh, you know, so, you know, some of the guys had, had sharp memories about it, some you know, not so sharp, but they they were able to put together some you know reactions that 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 would people would find interesting. You know, like uh, we even have Bobby Valentine in here, and he I think he talked about his first game as a player, not as a manager. And uh, you know, it, that, that's a dream come true for anybody who's pursued you know a major league baseball career. Here you are standing on a major league field; they're all wide eyed. You know, it's usually the same re reaction. They're a little bit of awe. Some guys not as nervous as others. Some, some I found, I don't have specific names, but some I found, they, they were okay with it on their first day. They weren't overwhelmed, but most of them were overwhelmed, and I can imagine that. You know, uh, 
I remember my first college game. I was at Lehman at City University. You're nervous and people are watching and things like that. Obviously not the crowds that you get in the major leagues. And then all of a sudden you're there and you have these two and three tier stadiums, unlike the minors. It's quite, it can be quite a shock, a culture shock for a player, but, but rewarding in the same vein. And, and just picking up on, on that, Mark, here, guys who get drafted are extraordinary. They all hit 700 in high school. They all threw no hitters. The pitchers did. And now they come to a circumstance where the field has been leveled. Everybody on your team, everybody on the opposition's team are as good as you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, you were the big fish, you know, in your hometown. All of a sudden, you're just a nobody all of a sudden again. And, you know, that that was why one of, I felt, the most important questions we asked was, you know, who was, you know, the first man, that first manager you had in professional ball? How did he impact his career? And, and how he mentioned before about Doug Flynn. And, you know, he says that Russ Nixon meant everything to him. Um, you know, he said they had number one draft choices all in the infield. He goes, guys, you know, $100,000 at first, second, and third. Um, he went to, you know, Doug and said, can you play third? And, you know, at that point, you know, Doug had played shortstop his whole career. And he said, yeah, I can play third. And then he said later on as he was playing third, he says, you know, why don't you tell me you, you played third? He goes, well, coach, I, I really didn't. And he, he also said that his nickname for him was Bluegrass because he was from Kentucky. But he says, he says but if you need me to catch, I can catch too. Um, so, but because of his willingness to play other positions for his manager, you know, they had a bond that became special and really helped Doug, you know, move up to, to the major leagues. 44 former New York Mets players sharing their memories of their time with the franchise in You Never Forget Your First, a collection of New York Mets firsts from Press Box Publishing and our friends and authors, Mark Rosamond and Howie Carpin. Great to have both of you with us. None of those chapters are the same. Everybody's got a different story, and that's what makes the book terrific. Best of luck to you guys, and thanks so much for being with me. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Ed. Always great. Mark Roseman and Howie Carpenter for us on Ed Randall's Talking Baseball, and we're back with you after this.